A horse! A horse! My kingdom for a horse! Hello and welcome back to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Happy Election Day and make sure you go out and vote. I already did a recap episode of the first quarter of this project at the beginning of my hiatus, so I really just plan to jump right back into it. Though, apropos of nothing, uh, just to give you an idea of what I've been doing in my time off here, other than working on new episodes, I went out to the East Coast this summer to Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., with uh, Delaware and Baltimore in between, and that checks Delaware off of my list of states and leaves only Alaska to go. I did write about it on my website, tracknerds.com, and I have some links to some pictures I took as well. I'm still learning, but there's some shots I'm pretty proud of. Anyway, today we're looking at Richard III from 1955, an adaptation of the Shakespeare play directed by and starring Laurence Olivier. As I usually try to do in these instances, I don't want to get into all the differences between the movie and the play, and we'll just focus on how the movie compares to real life, or rather, what we know historically, as we can never know the whole truth. First, some background. The story in Richard III will bring us to the end of England's War of the Roses, itself coming off the end of the Hundred Years' War with France. I'll try and keep it simple. So... Henry VI was the king of England as the war against France wound down. During the time of Joan of Arc, he was the same child king whom the English-supporting French faction endorsed for the throne of France as well over the Dauphin. So after the Hundred Years' War, the English had two factions of their own, those on the side of Henry VI, who favored an end to hostilities with France, and those who'd rather those hostilities continue, though likely for their own political motives. Before Henry VI had any kids of his own, his second cousin Richard of York was heir to the English throne. Both of these men were grandsons of two different brothers of the Black Prince whom we met in A Knight's Tale. Or they're also both three times great-grandsons of Longshanks from Braveheart, to give you more context. Henry VI did ultimately have a son, but his cousin Richard was still ambitious. Giving Richard of York the perfect opportunity was the fact that Henry had mental stability problems and would just go catatonic for extended periods of time, including about a year straight following the birth of his son. His queen, a French princess named Catherine of Valois, whom we'll discuss more here in a bit, was in charge, and Richard of York seized power. He wasn't crowned king or anything, but started calling the shots. When Henry VI came back to his senses, he booted York, who then militarized his forces, and the War of the Roses was on. I should note that this term comes from the symbols for each of the houses. The symbol of the House of York was a white rose, and the symbol of the House of Lancaster, of which King Henry was a member, was a red rose. Henry VI is captured, and Richard now formally wants the throne, but even his allies say suggesting that is a step too far. But there, there is ample support to have him named as Henry's heir in place of Henry's son. When Richard dies in battle, that same deal falls to Richard's son, Edward. Edward was already an adult and has been leading battles on his father's behalf, and the people do prefer him to a French queen and a crazy king. So Henry VI is deposed, and Edward is crowned Edward IV, and the House of York now has the throne. 
But when Edward marries for love, instead of making a political alliance, he alienates a political ally, the Earl of Warwick, who was even called the Kingmaker. Warwick has his own daughter married to the king's brother, captures the king, and now courts Henry VI, whom he helped oppose. And Henry VI is put back on the throne with Warwick pulling the strings. Edward IV, now newly deposed himself, regroups and scores a decisive victory over the Lancastrians at the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471. Henry VI's son was killed in the battle, and Henry himself died soon after, officially of melancholy over his son's death, but it's more probable that he was murdered. Edward IV was now pretty securely on the English throne, and this is where the movie Richard III begins. We open with the coronation of Edward IV, and the film doesn't spell out the backstory completely, and it doesn't really tell us that this is his second coronation. The king's brothers, George and Richard, are asked to greet their nephew, the king's son and heir. The king tells his young son that his uncles fought hard so that the young prince might one day rule their country in peace. Richard is played by the legendary actor Sir Laurence Olivier, with a deformed hand and a slight hump to his back. And I'll step right in here and say that Richard's deformities have been grossly overstated. He had a small deformity in his spine that in all likelihood would be undetectable unless you saw him without his shirt on. And even then, probably only manifested as one shoulder slightly higher than the other. After this initial meeting in the throne room there, Richard gives his famous monologue that begins with, Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the son of York. Basically, he's talking about how their long, violent struggle against the Lancastrians was over, and that all he personally has to show for it is being the king's youngest brother, with two nephews and his brother George between him and the throne. After all his glory on the battlefield, he's now nothing but a disfigured background player. But in this speech, we, the audience, learn of his ambition. So, even though this is during the War of the Roses period, the Lancastrians are basically out of the picture, and this is all about the rivalry amongst the descendants of Richard of York. Not to be confused with his son, Richard of Gloucester, who's talking here. Richard then begins his seduction of Anne Neville, even though she blames him for her husband's death. It gets very confusing to sort it all out because it seems like everyone in this story was named Richard or Edward or Henry, but her husband was the son of Henry VI, who was killed at the Battle of Tewkesbury, and her father was Warwick, the kingmaker, and he was also killed in battle against the Yorks. Here in the movie, Richard says something to the effect of, I killed her husband and her father, but I still need to kill my brother and nephew. Again, just referring to how many men stand between him and his ambition for the throne. Minor little side note, the movie does correctly have Richard wearing his personal sigil of a white boar. Richard's first target is his brother George. He successfully frames George for a plot to overthrow the king and George is imprisoned. There he is assassinated before the king's order to forgive him can make it through. Now, the film here makes George perfectly innocent, but... In reality, he had previously sided with the Lancastrians against his brother Edward. He married Warwick's other daughter after Edward wouldn't. And George, who may have had mental stability issues, does seem to have gotten involved in more plots against Edward, and the king himself pushed the charges against him, and Richard likely had little to do with it. 
Though Shakespeare does use an actual story from the time by having the assassins drown George in a barrel of wine in the Tower of London, a rumor that began to circulate at the time, immediately after his execution. The movie then has Edward IV die soon after from grief of not having forgiven his brother George in time, but in reality, Edward died five years after George. His cause of death is unclear, he just seems to have been generally unhealthy and died of illness at the age of 40. Edward's son, also named Edward, is heir to the throne at just 12 years old. So Richard is named as Lord Protector until the boy comes of age. Richard in the film here quickly ramps up his machinations. He circulates the rumor that his brother's two sons are illegitimate while having the boys move to the Tower of London for their protection. And I know that sounds pretty sketchy given the reputation the Tower of London has now as this place where political prisoners went to die, but... That wasn't necessarily its role then. It's, it's often where new kings stayed before they were crowned. Richard wins through propaganda and has the people begging him to take the crown in place of Edward IV's bastards. He does, and is crowned Richard III of England. And not that they're in a direct line, but just because it's fun to review, Richard I was Richard the Lionheart, and Richard II was the son of Edward the Black Prince and was deposed by... Henry IV, and so now we have Richard III. All this happened so fast that the young Edward was never crowned king. Uh, in the books, however, he is officially Edward V, for those of you keeping score of our Edwards. Longshanks was one, his son and grandson were two and three, and then we had Richard's brother was four, and then his nephew he just deposed or never allowed to be crowned was five. So yeah, Edward IV died on April 9th, and by June 26th, Richard was king. Here's where the movie seems most accurate. Even painting the young princes as illegitimate happened. I really couldn't find too much about this, but basically the idea was put out there, and enough people went along with it that it stuck. It's easy to see such a rumor being politically motivated, though I did find one blogger who wrote extensively and cited evidence that under the rules at the time, Edward IV's marriage to the prince's mother was likely technically invalid based on his previous relationship with another woman he was contracted to marry. Meaning, yes, the boys may very well have been legally illegitimate. So if you're Richard of Gloucester, this is the very kind of thing you could capitalize on without necessarily having to invent it. In the movie now, Richard wants to further secure his throne and ask the Duke of Buckingham who helped him become king, to kill his nephews in the tower. This is a step too far for Buckingham, who begins regretting helping Richard in the first place. The, the boys are still killed in the tower by assassins sent by Richard. Now, historically, the princes in the tower is one of the great mysteries of English history. Yes, one possibility is that they were murdered on orders of their uncle Richard III, but not necessarily. They could have been murdered by other ambitious men who hoped to depose Richard and would also need the boys out of the way for their claims to the throne. Or maybe they survived and escaped. A couple different men later claimed to be the younger brother of Edward V. Obviously, they couldn't both have been, but maybe one of them actually was. And the boy's aunt even is even said to have believed the claim of one of them. A couple hundred years later, two small skeletons were found near the White Tower, but that doesn't automatically mean they were the princes. The final conflict in the film comes with all of Richard's enemies coming together to face him in battle. 
The character that still needs to be introduced and has been mentioned in passing throughout is Henry Tudor. It's odd storytelling to have him enter the scene so late, but this is history. Sometimes people come out of nowhere. The Tudor story is pretty interesting. Henry Tudor had two close connections to Henry VI. His mother was Henry VI's second cousin, and his father was Henry VI's half-brother. That's not as icky as it sounds, as the connections were through Henry VI's father, Henry V, and Henry VI's mother from France. Though, yes, if you go back far enough, they're all descended from our friend Henry II, Hero Tool and Beckett and The Lion and Winter, if, if you're still rusty on your history. Anyway, sorry. So let's backtrack again and, and meet Catherine of Val- Valois. She was the daughter of King Charles VI of France, making her the sister of Charles VII, the, the Dauphin championed by Joan of Arc. As part of a peace treaty, she was married to Henry V of England. Her infant son, Henry VI, was then pushed to be king of both England and France during the time of Joan of Arc, as Henry V had not had died. So here was this French princess, now the queen dowager of England and the mother of the infant king, Henry VI, a widow just 21 years old. So Catherine became involved with Owen Tudor. Tudor came from a prominent Welsh family, not English, though... Not too much is known of him. He seems to have been a sort of head servant in the queen's household. There's no evidence that they were formally married, though it may be likely, or their children wouldn't have been held in as high a regard as they were. Their son, Edmund, was made an earl by his half-brother, Henry VI. Again, they had the same mother. Edmund married well, his wife being the king's second cousin, And that Edmund's son was Henry Tudor, who started this whole tangent. A man with royal blood, despite being the grandson of a servant. With Richard not being particularly popular, all his enemies rallied around Henry Tudor, who, through his mother, had a claim to the English throne as the three-times-great-grandson of Edward III. In the film, even more men defect from Richard to join the winning side. He fights well, all things considered. When he is dismounted and in need of a new horse, we get the famous line from Shakespeare, A horse! A horse! My kingdom for a horse! Richard is killed in battle, and Henry the Tudor becomes Henry VII, the end. In reality, Richard's forces greatly outnumbered Henry's at this decisive battle of Bosworth Field, but defection and a few key losses turned the battle against him. Richard attempted an aggressive charge to quickly get to Henry personally and end the fight at once. The attempt failed and Richard was killed, the last English king to have been killed in battle. Now, afterward, here's where I think Henry Tudor played it perfectly. So, being closely related to the previous Henrys, he was on the Lancastrian side of this War of the Roses. To ensure no further disputes to the throne he married the daughter of Edward IV, Richard III's niece, the older sister of the two princes who went missing from the Tower of London. So Lancaster married York. The two roses were united, and the Tudor dynasty began. Their symbol, the Tudor rose, was a white and red rose combined. And in another very cool move, what did Henry VII name his first son? Arthur. Especially cool when you think of his Welsh Tudor roots, The legendary King Arthur had been a Briton, not an Anglo-Saxon, and the Britons were forced into the pockets, you know, they became Wales and Scotland, but of course Arthur was still this important figure to the whole country. In fact, Thomas Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur 
was published the same year Henry VII was crowned, and his son Arthur was born the following year. So this is like a pop culture thing at the time. It was all set up for another King Arthur to rule England in the early 16th century. But real life isn't a fairy tale. Arthur died seven years before his father at the age of 15. His younger brother was to become perhaps the most famous or notorious English monarch of all time, Henry VIII. But we'll deal with him in a couple weeks. First, a few more notes on Richard. The biggest thing is that his reputation was basically assassinated by Shakespeare and the Tudors. Richard III was written during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, the granddaughter of Henry VII. It paints Richard as a Machiavellian weasel, basically stealing the English throne. I'm not saying he was a virtuous hero, but he seems to have been no worse than all the other ambitious men after the throne, including Henry VII. There are even today a couple of foundations dedicated to repairing the reputation of Richard III. Richard had one legitimate son who died as a boy a year before his father did. In fact, some saw the boy's death as a sign of God's disfavor with the king, maybe making them more likely to side with Henry Tudor. The movie doesn't cast the boy as a character. And as always, I really just skimmed the surface here with regards to all the moving pieces and political alliances and nuance that goes into an historical event like this. When even the simple version is complicated, there's just too much to go into in this format. This 1955 film earned Laurence Olivier the fifth of his 10 Oscar nominations as an actor in his career. He's one of the most famous and well-respected actors in history. I personally think he's too much of a stage actor when he's on screen, but that is his background. There's another very cool version of Richard III you could check out starring Ian McKellen from 1995. It's set in a fictitious 1930s style fascist England, but still uses all the Shakespearean language. I opted for the Olivier version so as not to have to deal with, you know, there being cars and stuff. Now, our friends Bill and Ted did visit England during the 15th century here, but we aren't given a specific time and are just told that they're at the castle of King Henry. Well, Henry's 4, 5, 6, and 7 all reigned during the 15th century, so that's not a lot of help. There are forum threads online of people trying to decipher when exactly this is supposed to be, The princesses they meet don't line up as children of any of the four Henrys, but in the credits, the elderly royal who orders their execution is listed as Evil Duke. So even if we're in a a Henry's castle, this may be a brother, a cousin, or other duke, not the king. So despite the rest of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure being fairly precise, they seem to have intentionally been more vague here. Elsewhere in the world around this time, Ivan the Great was ruling in Russia, not to be confused with Ivan the Terrible. He finally threw off the yoke of the Mongols over Russia and greatly increased the size and power of Russia. Machu Picchu was likely built by the Inca during the life of Richard III. Vlad the Impaler, yes, Dracula himself, died sometime during the events of today's film. Check out that bonus episode if you haven't already. The Spanish Inquisition was in full swing with Catholics in Spain wanting to make sure everyone there was, in fact, Catholic. While they did do plenty of bad things to non-Catholics, many believe its reputation is overblown and perhaps the victim of anti-Catholic sentiment in later centuries. Actually, very similar to what we've just discussed with Richard III. Again, it it wasn't great, but also probably not as bad as we've been led to believe. And speaking of Spain, just seven years after Henry VII claimed the English throne, 
Spain backed a certain Italian's voyage across the sea in search of a western route to the East Indies. Yes, Christopher Columbus was born just one year after Richard III. Next week, we'll be looking at the life of another famous Italian, the artist Michelangelo, played by Charlton Heston in 1965's The Agony and the Ecstasy. (laughs) 